My name is Jeanette Wolf, and I am really happy to be here this morning. You have so many great options right now. I'm really thrilled that you chose to be here. In the next 50 minutes, we're going to brush off some skills that you already possess, but maybe don't think about all that much, and hopefully we're going to teach you some new things. And one of the first things I want to teach you, it's what, 902, 903, whether you're here or whether you're sitting in another lecture hall right now, you can already probably reliably fill out your evaluator form. You're going, what? Well, according to this big talk, TED Talks evaluation by the Science of People, who are a crowdsourcing internet company, and they asked the question, what makes a TED Talk go viral? How can you have two speakers who have very similar topics, and one gets 10 million hits and the other gets 20,000? And one of the first things they found out is that readers who looked at hundreds of hours of TED Talks evaluated lecturers similarly whether they saw the entire lecture or just the first seven seconds. They also found that readers judged talks quite similarly whether they heard and watched the video or whether they watched the video just with mute. So what does this tell us? This tells us that we make super quick judgments about people, and it tells us that our body language is incredibly important. We can use this for patient care. So our goals for this next 50 minutes are very, very simple. I want us to consciously start thinking about things we do unconsciously all the time. I want to give you some tips to facilitate active listening, and more than anything, I want to give you some tips to improve the, the perception of connection. What we're going to do is in a few minutes, we're going to play a pretty goofy game. And goofiness with a purpose, my kids came through Montessori. You're going to learn how to remember and feel your face with different emotions. Then we're going to segue into the topic of empathy, which, believe it or not, is quite complicated and has a lot of things to do with what we do in medicine, both good and bad. And then finally, we're going to go into ways to maximize that first seven seconds of an interaction. And then I'll share you a tool that was developed in Boston by Helen Rice, who is a physician, which you can use and you can give to your colleagues if they're struggling with trying to make connections. So let's get started. My name is Jeanette Wolf. I'm from Bay State, which is about 90 miles west of here. We are the busiest hospital in New England at this point. We have a residency program, and it's a great place to live. In the last year, I've gotten money for writing for EP Monthly, for doing workshops for the Gender Intelligence Group, and for doing chart reviews. We all know that we are in an emotionally demanding career. But how many of us actually think about emotions? For example, how many universal emotions are there? And what I mean by that is if you get dropped off in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, how many facial expressions can you share with somebody else and they will know exactly what you mean? What do you think? 25, 50, 100? Four. Two more that are additions of the four. Maybe seven if you count the sneer of contempt. So to remind us what these emotions are, we're going to play a little game. And the way this is going to work is we're going to divide each of your sections in half. If you're in the section next to the door, 
you are going to be an A. If you're in the section next to the wall, you're going to be a B. In a few seconds, I'm going to ask everybody who is an A to close their eyes. I'm then going to show a slide that describes an emotion. And at the count of three, everybody in B is going to show that emotion to everybody in A. And then you're going to mimic it back. And the purpose of this is for us to really be conscious of how our face moves when we display different emotions. And particularly, I want you to think about what your eyebrows are doing. So to review this again, if you're closest to the door in your section, you're going to close your eyes when I say close your eyes. The other group is going to look at the slide. And at the count of three, you're going to look at each other. And the B group is going to show a facial expression to A, which I want you to mimic. OK. Stick with me. It's going to be good. So A group, close your eyes. At the count of three, you're going to open them. One, two, three. You have to look at the B group who's showing the emotion. So what emotion is this? It's fear. And what are you doing when you're fearful? Your eyebrows go up. Your mouth goes open. Does anybody know what the sister emotion to fear is? that in the first microseconds you can't tell if you're going to fear or to this other emotion? Surprise. So imagine that you're walking into a room and you see something slither across the floor and you go like this and then you see a rattle on it and you go <gasps> All right, emotion number two. A side, close your eyes again. On the count of three, look over. One, two, Three. So what emotion is this? Disgust. Notice when we do the emotion of disgust, we scrunch up our nose because we don't want to inhale toxins. And we stick out our tongue because we don't want to swallow toxins. And we scrunch our eyes so nothing gets in our eyes. This also has a sister emotion. Does anybody know what it is? So close your mouth, scrunch your eyes up, and start waggling your finger. What emotion are you in now? You're in anger. And here's the deal with anger. Anger is a very interesting emotion because it's very layered and it's very contextual. Because sometimes we get angry when some person does an action, but when the same action is done by a different person, we might not get angry. So imagine that you're having a big barbecue at your house and all your neighbors are coming in their car and your son comes home and he whacks the back of your car. You might be pretty angry at him because he was texting. Now what if your boss is coming to your barbecue and he does the same thing to your car? You might not be waggling your finger and scrunching your eyes for that. All right, next one, we'll do this one all together. What is this one? It's joy, it's happiness. And happiness comes in a couple of flavors, too. When you're really happy, you scrunch your eyes and you get this little sort of pocket in your cheeks. When we're sort of faking happiness, the Pan Am smile, which is what it's known in research, you're sort of getting the smile like this, but there's nothing going on in your eyes. All right, we have one last emotion. A side, close your eyes again.
On the count of three, one, two, three, open. And what is this? Sadness. Look what's happening to the eyebrows now. They're not up. They're flat and across. And your mouth is open. So emotions are so important. When we broadcast these on our faces, what happens when we say one thing, but we're broadcasting something else? Which is, which is the message that the person that we're interacting takes away? The words or the body language? Yeah. So this is why when we teach physicians and nurses who are having problems interacting with patients, if we just teach them verbal mantras, they're going to fail miserably because the mantra is not what connects you or engages you. It's your body language. So now we're going to switch over to empathy. This is an incredibly wonderful and inspiring painting. It's by Luke Fields, and I didn't know the background of this painting until I heard Abraham Vergasi's TED Talk. He is a Stanford physician who talks about physician empathy. And here's the background of this painting. This painting was done by Luke Fields, and it was commissioned by the Tates of the Tate Gallery in London. But here's the really touching thing about this. Fields lost a one-year-old daughter, and he painted this as a tribute to the physician who was at the daughter's bedside during her, her spiral downward. And think about this. This guy, his name was Dr. Murray, could not save Field's child. And yet he had so much reverence and respect for him, he painted him. And he painted him as a caring, emotional human being. Now, how many patients do you think, if we could not resuscitate their one-year-old, that they would paint us? So what's happened? What's happened to medicine? Vergasi talks about how we have lost our bedside manner, and we have replaced things that used to happen at the bedside and taken them to the computer, where we've become taking care of the eye patient. And that we often think because we do high-tech care that we're doing high-quality care. But we know that that bedside empathy, that ability to connect with patients, is going to improve not only our relationship with the patients and make us enjoy our jobs more, it's actually going to make them take their medication, follow through with their appointments, and it's going to decrease our chance of getting sued. So what are the roots of empathy? Why are we as human beings empathetic? What's in it for us? And psychologists and sociologists think that there's two major reasons why we're empathetic. And the first one is to predict future behavior. So if I see somebody, is that too loud? I feel like I'm revibrating a little bit. So if I, can everybody hear me still? Can you hear me back there? A little bit louder? So if I see somebody do that disgust emotion 20,000 years ago when they're picking up a new berry, I might realize that I should stay away from that berry. So one reason that we are empathetic is because it helps us predict behavior. 
And they think that empathy probably started in old world apes. And the thing that's unusual about old world apes is that the mothers and the babies live by themselves for three to four years. And during that time, the baby straps herself onto the mother's belly so that they are face to face for three to four years. So that mother gets pretty good at predicting the behavior of that infant baby. The second root of why we are empathetic is because when we are empathetic, we are pro-social. And when we do things together, we have access to greater resources than we try to do it by ourselves. So this goes through with hunting. You can hunt bigger prey if you do a coordinated hunt. And it also goes through dynasties and empires. If you have large groups of men who are willing to coordinate fighting actions, you can go and you can take over other villages. So those are the two roots of empathy. Now, empathy is sort of a grab bag in the media, but in research, it's actually divided into two very different components. And they're affective empathy and cognitive empathy. Affective empathy is our subcortical empathy. And this is the sort of feeling part of empathy. And it has three components of mimicry, emotional contagion, and mirroring. Mimicry, we do this all the time when we see somebody yawn. Emotional contagion, we do this all the time when we're going into the department after we've turned off our Rolling Stones car in the, in the parking lot, we're going to work and we're in a really good mood and then we see all the nurses who are coming away from their shift and they say something like, oh my gosh, it is so awful there. And then all of a sudden, you don't need to mimic their faces, you can still catch an emotion without mimicry. And the final thing is mirroring. And mirroring is a really, really cool phenomenon. And mirroring is sort of like a second-hand experience. So if I put my hand on a hot burner, there's motor and sensory neurons that fire in my brain area. Here's the deal. If he puts his hand on a hot burner, probably 10 to 20% of my motor neurons will also fire. And it's sort of a very fine balance because if a lot more fired, I would no longer be thinking about his hot hand. I'd be worried about my own hot hand. But some evolutionists think that mirroring is the reason why humans have soared beyond many other animals because now instead of having to go through 100,000 years of evolution to be able to have a worm-forward coat, we can simply watch somebody else acquire a skill, copy it, and then we can show and teach other people that skill. And that quickly, vertically, and horizontally spreads culture throughout a generation without waiting for 100,000 years of evolution. So when we think about effective empathy, this is sort of the image. These guys are mirroring each other, they're sharing the same emotion, they're feeling the same thing. Now this is very different than cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy is our conscious empathy. And this is literally talking about being able to put ourselves in somebody else's situation. And we're gonna, I'm gonna give you an example of cognitive empathy. Right now I w want everybody to draw the letter, capital letter E on their forehead. So before I explain why you just did that, 
There is no right or wrong answer. Our cognitive empathy, our theory of mind, as to whether we are sort of in our own mind or whether we are in a mind where we're looking for other people's reactions, is very manipulatable and it's very contextual. So sometimes, based on different conditions, we are very self-focused. Other times, we are very outwardly focused. So if you wrote that letter E on your forehead with the branches going toward your right ear, at the moment when you did that exercise, you were very self-focused because you looked at that E and you poured it out like this as if you were reading it. If you put the branches of that E reverse and backwards, the moment you did that exercise, you were very outwardly focused because you're thinking about what that letter E would look like to everybody else's forehead. So this is an example of theory of mind. If you're playing hide and go safe, this kid thinks that he is hidden because he has not developed theory of mind yet. Now, usually affective and cognitive empathy are incredibly interwoven, but not always. Does anybody know who this guy is who is described as kind, salacious, and empathetic? Ted Bundy. You know how Ted Bundy got his victims? He put a sling on his arm and then pretended to be struggling carrying lots of books to his car. So he knew all about effective empathy. Ted Bundy also worked in a suicide hotline. So psychopaths lack certain parts of empathy. Specifically, they have a difficult ability of actually appreciating the emotion of sadness. So they can cognitively get somebody else's perspective, but they don't feel it. And one statistic I learned this summer, 90% of rapes, 90% of rapes have been committed by people who have already raped once. So that's your lack of effective empathy. Now that is incredibly different than another group of people that often struggle with cognitive empathy, which are people who are autistic. If you ask an autistic child to do that letter E, it's probably not gonna ever go to that left ear because it's very hard for them to cognitively understand that people have different perspectives than they do. But once you tell them, they feel the other person's grief. So what empathy variables are there? There is a genetic component. There also is the amount of it prenatal testosterone that we're exposed to. If you are exposed to high levels of prenatal testosterone, you may have lower levels of certain types of empathy. Early childhood stress may decrease your empathy. The context may decrease your empathy. And if you're distracted, it's hard for me to read your face if I'm not paying attention to it. Is there any gender differences in empathy? Well, yes. We know for effective empathy, men are much more likely to receive other people's emotions if they themselves are in a good, settled mood. And those of you who know me know that my passion outside of emergency medicine is the neuroscience differences between how men and women think. And I want to be really clear, not all men and not all women think this way. 
they're very much overlapping populations. But the more that we can understand that there are people who have different perspectives than we do, the more we can bridge the gap and communicate more effectively with them. So none of this stuff is absolute. There's exceptions to everything. But just understand the greater idea that there are some neuroscience bases as to why we do have different networks in our brain. So men are much more likely to pick up things if they're in a good mood. And they're much more likely to be in tune to happy female faces. Women, on the other hand, probably are a little bit better at mimicking and mirroring. And if you, again, go to those evolutionary roots where you're looking at an infant for a long time, you can understand why that might be. But women are also better at picking up two specific emotions, and that's anger and sadness. Now, what about cognitive empathy? There are less gender differences here. But women seem to have more layers between their cognitive and affective empathy, whereas men often become more contextual, and they will be empathetic to people they think deserve it a little bit more. And their empathy can be dampened with comp competition and aggression. And this just makes sense. If you're going to go raid another village, you would never be able to do that successfully if you were stunned and tripped every time you looked at somebody who you were about ready to hurt. So we're going to look at three studies. This first one is Mather by Neural Reports. And what they did is they asked the question, do men and women have different empathetic stress responses? And one of the common ways in the psychology research to get your cortisol level elevated to simulate psychological stress is to put your hand in an ice bucket for three, three minutes. So they did this, and then they put people in an MRI scan, and they looked at the area that picks up facial recognition. And their question is, when men and women are stressed, do they recognize faces in the same way? So are they picking up other people's broadcasting of their emotions? And what they found is that there was a difference, that when men were stressed, the area in their fusiform area of their brain lit up quite less. And when women were stressed, it lit up a lot more, and there was actually more connections to other parts of the brain. The second study from the world's longest journal, what they did is a series of three experiments where they induced stress. And again, they asked the questions, are there differences between men and women in their stress response? And they found that when men got stressed, they tend to go to their default habits, and they became less effective and less cognitive empathy. Whereas with women, when they got stressed, again, they began to be a sponge and started picking up much more of the emotion in the room. And then the final very interesting study, and this is actually my favorite, what they did with this is they had you played a game against somebody who was in the study, and that person in the study either played the game nicely with you or they were sort of a jerk. And then you went in the MRI scanner and they inflicted pain on the guy you played the game with. And what they wanted to know is, did your empathy response change depending on whether you liked him or you thought he was a jerk? And what they found out with women, it really didn't matter so much. The pain mirroring neurons still fired. But with men, when the guy they didn't like got in there, not only did they have less mirroring, but sometimes their reward center even lit up. So what does this mean? This means that when we're in a trauma room, when you have men and women working together to take care of a critically ill patient, 
when the stress level starts going up, we might actually be behaving and reacting differently. And why is this important to know? Because if you're a woman and you are using nonverbal language to try to communicate with somebody who's on their automatic focus button, you're gonna be incredibly ineffective. So during these times, those are when we need to be very direct, ask very clear, direct questions. And then if you're a guy, you need to understand that as you are totally focused to get over to the CAT scanner, you may need to update everybody else in the room as to what you're thinking because you might be missing the fact that the charge nurse behind you is rolling her eyes because you've just called out for three different drugs because you keep changing your mind as to what would be the best way to sedate this person for intubation. So learning that there is a disconnect in this moment can help us all be better physicians. So there are some things that can erode empathy. And as I go through this list, I want you to think of your surgical rotation when you were a medical student. Power can erode empathy. Because if we are empathetic to be pro-social to get resources, if you have a lot of power, you already have the resources. There's not as much motivation for you to play nice in the sandbox. A strong hierarchy, you do this because you're told to do this. A strong affiliation, if you want to be one of us, you're going to do this. And then a justification that you possibly are causing this person acute distress for some greater outcome and greater good. Well, there's something else that can destroy empathy. It's a medical degree. And this is a neuroimage study where they used evoked potentials. And they had doctors and non-doctors look at painful conditions, and they looked to see where those evoked potentials fight. And essentially what they found out is that physicians are buffered from affective empathy and cognitive empathy compared to people who are not in the medical field. Maybe this is protective, because maybe if we felt, had effective empathy for every unhappy person we saw, maybe we would burn out of this crazy, crazy field in a few, for you, in a few years. And maybe this is protective because it's exhausting trying to meet the emotional needs of people. And if we use too much energy doing that, maybe there's going to be a hit to our executive function and we're not going to be able to objectively work our way through complicated cases. But there's a price to that. In your careers, when you have felt like you're beginning to burn out, I imagine that you have suffered from some of these things. The patients sort of all meld together. And then they don't even become patients. They become pathological organs. The kidney stone in room three, the CHF in room five. And then sometimes we just morally disengage. Oh my God, if I see another drunk, I'm gonna go crazy. What's the use of using this $250,000 medical degree? So we have to find that tightrope. We have to find that balance from how we can connect without losing so much of ourselves that we are burned out, we have nothing to give to our family. So here are some suggestions. Find the stuff in your job that you love and do it more. Be aware of emotional contagion. Find the people who love what they do and suck up their positive emotional energy and consciously create connections. 
So we're now going to go back to the first seven seconds. This is Mark Bowden. He is a world-famous nonverbal body language guru. And he will say, seven seconds to evaluate somebody? That is horse crap. You need like three microseconds. Our brain works that quick. And he will say, we immediately slot new people into one of four areas. We like them, we dislike them, we don't even notice them, or we're checking them out. So let's go through each of these. Who are people that when we meet in a national meeting who we've never met before that we immediately like? The people who are like us, who maybe we know share something with us, or there are people who are like what we want to be. Now what about negative people? We've all had this. You walk in a room and you talk to somebody for like 10 seconds and you're just praying you're going to get paged out of the room because you just really don't like them. I would say if we look at this picture for a while, there's somebody's trigger for all of us. And sometimes we go to that negative spot at a very subcortical level. And unless we override it, it becomes our default. So we need to know our triggers and our habits. When you are trying to run out of that room because that patient just gets you the wrong way, recognize that feeling and then take a chair out and sit down and start using your executive functioning part of your brain. Because how many times, I'll tell you my, my perfect example of this, I go through the medical record before I go see somebody. I see that they've been in the ER for back pain five times in the last month. I go in thinking, oh my gosh, this guy's drug seeking. And then 25 minutes later when I'm typing my note, I realized I haven't asked him a single red flag back pain question. So we fall into our own traps. Recognize what your traps are. And go beyond. Try to find an attribute in that person that you do share. Do they have a pet? Are they a Patriots fan? Do they grow up in the same part of the world you did? We can find these connections. We just have to look for them. Diversity, when we understand that when we consciously make an effort to bridge with people that we don't really want to on a subcortical level, sometimes miraculously things happen. We find authentic connections and we are richer human beings from it. So if you know that if you're at a department meeting with people from all sorts of different silos in your hospital, all sorts of generations, all sorts of different backgrounds, that finding a solution is gonna be more difficult than if you're at a room with just people in your group, but you stick with it, many times those solutions will be much greater. Now the next category is neutral. How many people did you pass in the conference hall to get here? Probably a lot. And how many did you notice? So this is sort of the eh. I can tell you, most of the patients we see, we probably slot in this category. But I can also tell you that most of the patients we see do not slot us in that category. They probably are slotting us in the positive or the negative. And what about the potential mate? So if you go back to Darwin, the natural brain divergence for men and women's brain is his second theory. So everybody knows his first theory, which is 
natural selection, but his second theory was sexual selection. And simply put, organisms that have a reproductive advantage are more likely to get their DNA into the next generation. So this is sort of the, the differences in brain functioning because what men and women find attractive are different, so our brains develop differently from that and then continue to de develop in ways based on our experience. So everybody's gonna come on, really? We're talking about Darwin, this is a nonverbal language talk. Well, I think it's important. Besides the fact that 40% of you may have dated somebody at your job, the more important thing is once we have these sort of networks of our framework for dealing with conflict, unless we, again, consciously override them, this becomes our default behavior. So indirect aggression, eye-rolling. Who does this and why do we do it? Men and women do this for different reasons. When men use indirect aggression, they often use it to establish silo differences. You're on the football team, you're not on the football team. When women do this, they do it in a very intimate way with very close contacts. And for female, indirect sexual aggression is based on competition. And every guy in the room right now I know is beginning to go, okay, I'm gonna just pick my text for the next two slides. Here's the deal, even if you're not a woman, chances are you have worked with many of them. Chances are you have hired many of them. And if you understand this stuff, again, it's gonna give you an advantage when conflict arises in your group and make you think about it in a different way. So when we look at female indirect aggression, a woman's ability to attract whoever they want is based on two things, either making themselves be as physically attractive as possible to what a man might want, and that's gonna be based on $60 billion of cosmetic industry, or diminishing the value of their competitors. And you can do that in two ways. You can undermine their confidence by criticizing their attractiveness. I bet most women in this room can easily, easily remember a comment made in high school about their body by somebody in the hallway. It's an effective way to just undermine women. And the other thing is to start false rumors. Tracy Valentine did an incredible research lit review on this very subject of indirect aggression amongst women, and she found out two things. Going back to, unfortunately, the reasons why women undercut other women, and anybody who's been in high school knows this. Good-looking guys, they are not the targets of indirect aggression. Good-looking females, they definitely are the targets of indirect aggression. But guess what, we take this to work too. And if you have an attractive woman, other women look at her more critically and believe she's less sincere. And the other thing that is hugely important about women working with women, and if you have hired a floor nurse and then put her in a charge nurse position, and you can't understand why everybody seems to be putting her under the bus and she seemed to be such this great floor nurse, well, here's the answer. This is an awesome, easy reading book by Ann Litwin. And she talks about women working with other women have four rules. You listen, you share secrets, you're equal, and you're loyal. Well, guess what? You can't do that in the hospital because nobody is equal. They have different roles, they have different responsibilities. You can't share secrets because what you're told is you go higher up on a ladder, you're not supposed to share with everybody beneath you. So you're caught in this catch-22. If you don't engage in this, you're looked as inauthentic and aloof. And if you do engage in it, 
and then you have to do remedial action, you're screwed. So what do you do? And to let you know that this is a real issue for women in medicine, this is a study that came out in academic medicine last year, and it asked the question, do women and men run codes in the same manner? And what are their concerns about running resuscitations? And just to be very clear, there's good literature out there that men and women can effectively run codes the same. But what the difference is, is that when a woman, a young woman is running a code, she is worried not only about making sure she gets the technical aspects of running the code correctly, she is worried that if she does not manage the relationships with the rest of the team, that there could be backlash after the code. So this is stuff that is real. So how do you get around this? Well, the first thing is you have to discuss it. The second thing you have to know that it's a universal challenge for women with working with other women. And you need to agree on new rules. You need to agree that there's going to be times that I just can't follow all these things because my job description is different, but that doesn't mean that I don't care about you. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to support you and your own advances in your job. But the number one thing is to veto indirect aggression and to teach people, women and men, that when there is a problem, you either drop it or you approach the person. But you don't go behind somebody's back and start rolling your eyes and slamming charts. And if we could do this as a culture, man, wouldn't it be a nicer place for all of us to work? Another way for women and men to be able to make sure everybody is on the same team together is to liberally use timeouts and debriefs. All right, this is what we have. This is what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes. Does anybody have anything to add? I think this is so critically important because from what we talked about with empathy before, if we are not careful, dominant personalities, men and women, can shut down the room. And important information is missed because if we don't give the power to people who don't have the confidence to go up to a swaggering middle-aged trauma surgeon and say, did you know this person's on Lovenups? That patient's going to be at risk. And our ability to do our job long-term is going to be at risk. So understanding that the very most dangerous thing we do in medicine is shut down a room, and the second most dangerous thing we do in medicine is we don't speak up when we should. So finally, we're going to go back to these positive. How do we nail the first seven seconds? How do we give people the illusion that we are slotting them in their positive spot, even if they might be sort of neutral? Well, here's the deal. What I'm going to teach you is a little bit inauthentic, but it will hopefully get us to a space where we can find those authentic connections. So the first thing you're going to need to do is do a cognitive pause. Can somebody just give me the time? Oh, good. So cognitive cause. Think about what you need to do. How many times when you have just come out of this huge, messy resuscitation, and you're just exhaling, and somebody says, oh my god, that family in room six, they're really pissed. They've been waiting for the last two hours, just warning you. Well, before you go into that room, you've got to take a breath. Because if not, you're going to get blindsided, and you're going to go down a vortex, and you're going to put each other in this negative slot. So when you go in, take a breath and learn a couple different mantras when you go in, not just with your words, but with your hands. And I would say one of the things I do all the time is I will go into a room and I'll say, oh my God, it's such a zoo out there. 
You have been so patient. Thank you so much. How can I help you? People want to feel validated. So we're going to end with Helen Rice's empathy tool. And this is a validated tool that was published in Academic Medicine in 2014. And what her whole stick is, which is so beautiful, it's not what we say. It's how we act. It's how our body and how our face interacts with patients. And she has a nice mnemonic, which we're going to go through. So your eyes, what are your eyes doing? You need to look at your patients. And if you feel too overwhelmed by making direct eye contact, look at a space above their forehead. Using your muscles around your mouth. Guess what? Most patients won't recognize the difference between a Pan Am smile and a real smile. Show your teeth. So there's been a lot in the popular press the last two years about body poses, which is Amy Cotty's Superman poses and how to sort of go into situations where you feel like you might be intimidated to sort of give yourself body positioning tools to walk into a room. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I want to make sure that we know not just how to do these big body poses, but how we make ourselves small. Because sometimes some of our patients need us to get small. I think my residents know how badly I want to have a patient who wants to go AMA to stay by how much lower I get by their bed. We have power. People who are not in medicine, some of them still really respect that power. Be careful how you use it. This is Mark Bowden's truth plane. He talks about this all the time. Elbows out like this, you're exposing your stomach. When we were uh, sort of ancient animals where we were on all fours, our belly was an incredibly important part because if you got stabbed in your belly, you would immediately die. So if you go in with something like this, you're going in saying, I have no weapons, my hands are open, I'm exposing myself, I'm vulnerable. And that is an engaging position for people to see. Going back to the science of people tips from the original TED Talks we talked about, talk with your hands. Make sure that you're pointing your torso to the patients. Those of us who try to double dip and type our charts as we're going like this to the patients, you know, some patients we can get away with that because they don't expect it, or they don't expect us to have good etiquette. But for people that you're really struggling with connection, make sure that you're actually facing them with your torso. Avoid chin jutting. That's the dominant power pose. And be conscious of head bobbing. There is a gender difference in head bobbing. If you're telling me a story and I'm going like this, does that mean I'm agreeing with the story? No, it just means I'm following your reasoning. I might not agree with you at all. So make sure that you're not using that as an avenue for obvious miscommunication. The A, this is where we get into the cognitive empathy. What is that patient going through? And there's a good trick called name and tame. So if you say something to a patient and they're answering you, but you know their body has shut down, so what they're saying and what their body's saying is different, you can sort of call them out on that. Wow, you say everything's fine and that you're safe at home, but when I ask you that, you cross your arms and you look very scared. 
Are you sure there's nothing more you would like to talk about? And modify your style. Tony Robbins does this all the time on his talks where he will say, if you go in, and we do this naturally with older people where we lower our voice and we slow down our cadence. But Tony Robbins will say, see what the person's doing. If they're going like this and they're talking to you, when you talk to them and you go like this, they will think you're more like them. Finally, your tone. What is your tone and your awareness? Those of us who have ever listened to ourselves in an answering machine, we all know that the voice that we hear is not the voice you hear of ourselves. Because our vocal cords and our bony structure of our larynx changes the sound perception in our ear. So many times if we have a dominant tone, we not, not even be aware of it because when we hear it, it may not seem that way. To remind you that this is an important thing, and that if you're having problems connecting with certain people that you really need to be conscious of your tone and your cadence. This was a study done by Ambody where she went into a surgery office with lots of surgeons and she put recordings of their voices with their patients through a synthesizer where they took out consonants. So you could not actually understand the content of what they were saying. All you could understand was the tone of their voice and the cadence of their, their, their speech. She then, put them to blinded recorders who listened to them, and they judged them on a dominant scale. She then was able quite nicely to match up the dominant scale of the voice with malpractice claims. Empathy. This is the hearing part. This is trying to find an attribute with the patient that you know you can connect with. This is looking at them as a human being. And finally, the why. This is your own reaction. This is when you want to run out of the room that you actually grab the chair and you sit down. This is learning how to cognitively distance. This is figuring out where you are in that tightrope of giving too much or blocking yourself out for connection. So conclusions. How we are with patients is critically important. We make really quick decisions. Create conscious connections. Understand that empathy is incredibly complicated. Thank you so much.